The following episode of TOEFOP is rated MA for mature audiences. It may contain sexual references, time travel references, allegations of bin misconduct, and mild coarse language. TOEFOP advises that this episode is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15 or anyone who thinks a comedy conversation between two old mates sounds like a terrible idea for a show. Minors must be accompanied by a parent or guardian. This is John Deke speaking. Everyone relax. This is Topop. I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Will Anderson. Hello, Charlie. Hi, Will. And this is an actual episode. Not a little five-minute intro, an actual episode. We're back, baby. By the way, I'm going to get Podcast Mike to leave this in. Ramona is panting very hard at the start of this podcast. She's excited. To, she's excited that you and I <laughs> are, back. are back here for an actual episode of this show rather than just an intro to another compilation episode and we are back with a vengeance what's been going on with you well as you know will i've moved house i'm uh now living in your neck of the woods I've been here for two months and uh i think it's a real shame that we started macho fop last year because i would like to include myself now i am mr renovations man i'm at bunnings every day i've surprised myself charlie clausen is Mr. Renovations. You should have been doing like a home series. This is actually what you should have been doing. You should have been like, idiot teaches himself to know how to do stuff. Yeah. From ground up, people could follow your journey from, hey, are you an idiot that knows nothing? Well, over the series of the next three years, by me looking at other YouTube clips, I'm going to learn how to not be an idiot. And then I'm going to distill all that information into one easy to follow series. Because at the moment... I imagine you're doing what I do when I need to do those sort of things, which YouTube. is YouTube t- tutorials. YouTube University. But you have to go to different places. I imagine when you're learning to paint, you go to some sort of mm-hmm. you know, painting channel. And when yep. you're learning to fix a dishwasher, you go into some dishwasher channel. What you need is a So You Want to Be a Man for Idiots guide. <laughs> and you could be that idiot, Charlie. Well, you said, you know, you just, you just threw out three years. I reckon if I did do it for three years, it would still be the one job. Because <laughs> although I am learning things, it's taken me a long time. The running joke for the first month we were in this house was um, uh, the hinges on, on one of Iona's wardrobes were kind of loose. And so I was like, well, I'll replace those. And it seemed easy to say, I'll just replace the hinges. It took eight visits to Bunnings of me buying the wrong hinge, buying the wrong degree of hinge, buying the wrong type of screw for the hinge. Like when you go to Bunnings and you uh, do a return and they exchange it, they staple the old receipt to the new receipt. By the time I went in for the last time to get these hinges, this thing was like, the Bible. It was so thick. The girls at work at my local You Bunnings, needed a hinge to hold together all the receipts. <laughs> it was like that. It was so much to kind of figure out. And a mate of mine is a carpenter. And halfway through this hinge swapping ordeal, I was like, oh God, this is so hard. I feel embarrassed talking to you. And he was like, no, no. Even for carpenters, hinges are like the job you don't want to do because there are so many kinds of hinges and you have to get the exact right one for, do you want the doors to be overlay or inset? Do you want them to meet in the middle, have a bit of separation in between? Do you have the right screwdriver that you can change the kind of height and the width, all this kind of stuff? It's annoying as hell. Is there, isn't there a dating app called Hinge? Is Hinge the name of one of the dating apps? I reckon there's like, you know, what's it called? Tinder and Bumble and Hinge. What's the Hinge angle? Well, I was going to say, maybe it's that. Maybe hinge is no. I was going to say the fact that it's very hard to find the right hinge. Like we are an honest dating app. You're going to have to go back and you're going to have to try a few hinges. It might not be the first person that you hook up with on our service. You might have to go back a couple of times until you find the right hinge. Okay, so what is Hinge? Uh, Hinge is uh, a dating app that aims to get away from mindless swiping culture by matching you based upon interest and preferences and inspiring conversations from that. Well, isn't that exactly what the other ones? Well, they just don't have a swipe function. But yeah. the rest of them are like, hey, you send someone a message. Yeah, I reckon Hinge, from just that description, I'm imagining they require more... It's an inf- up, up and down swipe as opposed <laughs> to left and right. <laughs> no, they probably require more information about you. So it's not just about how you look in a bikini or with your shirt off or like cuddling a tiger. It's about, you know what your interests are and, and, you know, what your preferences are and those things get matched together. Okay, so Hinge uh, was launched in 2012, the same year as Tinder. At first, both apps were similar, focusing on swiping through vast amounts of profiles, though Hinge tried to pair you with friends of friends on Facebook. 
Hmm. The company found that only one in 500 hinge swipes led to people exchanging phone numbers and they wanted to change that. Thus, Hinge pivoted in 2015, rebranding as an app for people after relationships and meaningful connections rather than people looking for friendships or hookups. Creating a profile on Hinge is more than just posting your photos. They're obviously important, but so are your virtuals, your vitals, and your vices. Okay, quickly, Will. What are your virtues, your vitals, and your vices? Uh, my virtues are that I am loyal. Yep. And I have a reasonable income. Yep. And I... Hard for you to have an affair because you're hips. <laughs> it's not easy for you to like <laughs> slip off, I mean, you know, and having an affair I'm with someone. I'm not sure I should be like leading with that. Is that's that one virtue? of my top three virtues. <laughs> and that's not really a virtue. No, that's if that you would have an affair, except that your body is stopping you from having an affair. It's hard to list that as a virtue. What's the next one? Vitals. Vitals. I guess that's like your non-negotiables. Like you're the, you know, what are the ABCs in me, baby? I mean, I guess like, you know, racism and homophobia <laughs> and... Oh no! Like, no I've got to be honest with you. No, Amy slips a few of those in every now and again. Hasn't been a deal breaker. So, um, what are my? Or vitals? maybe maybe vitals is more like height where you live. Vital statistics. I mean, it's good. Age. If, it's good if they live near me. Um, uh, although I travel, so it's got to be someone who's like okay to be by themselves when I'm right. Away. Yeah, yeah. You yeah Come you up. travel for work. Yeah, you're a freelancer. Yes. And what are your vices? Well, so many. <laughs> in fact, it's predominantly vices. <laughs> they give you three pages on Hinge. Okay, so they say that those the virtues, vitals, and vices encompass things like religious beliefs. Mm. All right, so what's your religious belief? Atheist. I'm a, yeah. A politi- uh, well, atheist or agnostic or whatever. Well, no, there's a difference. You can't just be I atheist know. I know there is a difference. There isn't any difference to me. What, how, what do you mean? Well, I don't believe there's ever any evidence of a God. Right. But if there was evidence that came along that said there was some sort of God, then I would change my mind because I'm more interested in the evidence than I am interested in the the dogma or like, you know, the belief. So like, am I an atheist in that I believe that there is no God? I believe that there is no God because I believe there is no evidence of there being a God. Right. However, if some evidence came along that there was a God or if there were aliens or those sort of things, I'd be... Happy to have a more open mind to it. Uh, political leanings. Lefty. Yeah. Chardonnay sipping. Limousine liberal. <laughs> I mean, limousine. What do they know? What did they say in Australia? Yeah, you can't be a limousine liberal. It's a limousine lefty? No. What is it? It's We got accused of being limousine. Was it limousine Chardonnay lefty? socialists. Something. I, don't know. I, thought, I thought maybe it's limousine Cafe latte lefty. sippers. I do like a cafe latte. Height. Uh, six foot two and a half. Uh, ethnicity. Uh, Caucasian. I, I never know what to write. When, they, when someone asks what your background is, I don't know to say Anglo-Saxon, Caucasian, or Irish, you know, Irish-Danish. Like, yeah. what, what's the accurate description? Is Caucasian and Anglo-Saxon the same thing? White. Generic setting. <laughs> Generic. <laughs> Paul Rudd. <laughs> well, he's Jewish. That's even, that's even, even that's too exotic for me. <laughs> Whatever comes up as the blank one at the start, before you get to choose the other ones, I'm that one. Who's the most vanilla white celebrity? Vanilla Ice. No, it, like <laughs> even he's like got a bit too. Oh, Vanilla Ice. What's his real? Isn't his name Rip Van Winkle or something like that? <laughs> I think it is Rob Van Winkle. Well, that's too because that's, that's kind of Dutchy. So that's that's too fancy. I'm I'm talking like John Smith. Who is the John Smith celebrity? Like if you had to point to just Mister White Bread, Chris vanilla. Evans, Tom Hanks. Yeah, Chris Evans. But is Chris Evans interesting? I believe he is. Yeah, but I'm just trying to think of like. Bland. Yeah. Well, just house brand. It doesn't mean mean bland. Sometimes you go to a place and you're like, I'll just have your house red and it's a good glass of wine. Tom Hanks then is probably... It's just your house blend. It's just what... It's what everywhere serves. Yeah. Gary Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> like, fine. Like a leading man, I guess. A can-do character roles, I guess. But essentially, it's just a white, middle-aged white guy. I mean, I'm looking forward to following your adventures, uh, yeah, putting together your house. Uh, can I talk to you about, because Gary Sweet's a good, uh, yeah. yeah, good jumping off point Jumping off point to what I did today. I did yeah. another podcast and it's called The Movies That Made Me and uh, Joe um, Dante and uh, Josh Olsen are the hosts of that podcast and Joe Dante is like a you know director, like did Gremlins, a whole bunch of 
other cool things. Josh wrote a history of violence, uh, does the West Wing thing with Dave Anthony. But the idea is that you like it's ten movies that that made you that are yep. important to you. And Josh said to me, maybe if you can do a theme, you know that would be a good way to go with it. And so I was like, I'm going to do ten Australian movies. Ah, but. Not the 10 best Australian movies. Just 10 that mean something. I'm going to, yeah, 10 movies that tell you something about what it means to be Australian through movies. Right. And I thought it might be fun to see how many of my 10 you could guess. So this is me. If I had to name 10 Australian films, I'm happy to give you some clues along the way if you need. But how many of the top 10 Australian films do you think you could name of the 10 that I went with? Following the idea that, they're not necessarily the best films, but they say they say something about being Australian. Something about being Australian, the experience of you know Australia, they're culturally significant. How many of the films did these guys know? How many were world famous? Well, I'm going to say less than I thought, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is meant to be a jumping-off point for conversations. But there was only I would say three or four of the films that they had seen or even heard of or had much, you know, interest in to be okay. honest. Well first one's obviously Alvin Purple. And then I guess it's Alvin Rides Again. <laughs> uh so think a little bit more through the prism of, you know, what might have that I think, I think in my lifetime would have been. The first been. thing that came to yeah. mind is the castle. Okay. So the castle, which I said is probably the most iconic Australian film of all time. Yes. So yes. Quintessential, great. like especially if you're saying what's it like to be an Australian, that is filled with kind of Australian colloquialisms and references to like pop culture in the late 90s and stuff like that. So it would be, that that that's the first one. But then after that, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Now, the next thing I would go to is the most obvious choice. But I don't think you would go obvious. Did you go well, obvious? No, I went some obvious because I was like, you but know, like this is the most obvious choice. Yes. Well, Crocodile I went with Dundee. the, yeah, of course. You okay. have to talk about Crocodile okay. Dundee. Because I wanted to know from their point of view, because it's so, like for us, it's so ingrained as part of our culture, right? This yeah. $7 million movie that made $350 million, it went all over the world, it became a cultural phenomenon, it was how people saw Australia, like, you know, mm. they still to a certain extent how people see Australia in a whole bunch of different places. Like, it's been both a really positive thing for Australia and I think then eventually kind of a negative thing that has held us back because a lot of what we do now is fight against that depiction of who we are as Australians. I don't think you can have a conversation about Australian cinema without having a conversation around you have Crocodile Dundee yeah. because so many of the other films, because I actually said to them, I said, like, you know, this is how America saw us, you know, we're, mm. we're Mick Dundee, but how we saw us is the castle. Yeah. Okay, two, you've done well so far. Well, it's funny uh, you should bring up Crocodile Dundee. I was talking to our mate VK uh, the other day because um, uh, we're walking around and uh, looking at all the places that Paul Hogan used to own <laughs> here, and John Cornell still owns. Um, and he was, I, I was saying, oh, you know, Will and I went on a big deep dive of Crocodile Dundee last year and I watched that ABC documentary and it was really fascinating finding out how John Cornell and Paul Hogan basically took their experience making Australian tourism ads and said, let's just do a feature film like that. And it looks like an Aussie feature film, but whether or not that would hold up. And he showed his two boys who were what, like, uh, like eight and five and they loved it. And I was like, Oh, I, th I think that makes sense because if, especially as a young kid, Paul Hogan or Crocodile Dundee is essentially an Australian superhero. It's one of the few, like if you're in the world of growing up in the world of Marvel and stuff, to see, well, representation matters. <laughs> to hear an Australian accent on a big screen doing heroic things and sort of having like an, because he's got an iconic look. It's basically like a superhero outfit. It would stand the test of time because there's stuff in that that is purely iconic. It would have been great if in Avengers Endgame, <laughs> in that moment where all the other superheroes start appearing, like in the background yeah. for the final battle, then like just Pikes in the corner. Just wanders out. <laughs> Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> what a perfect way. Because Howard the Duck was there, right? That's one of the you know, kind of Easter eggs in that movie. Imagine if Paul Hogan, like dressed as Crocodile Dundee, they've done nothing to reverse age him. Yeah. They've just got him dressed. <laughs> They've aged him up. In fact, that's him playing old Captain America at the end of the scene. He did look a little like that, actually. <laughs> I, that would have been a perfect um, time for, for... We've always talked about Chris Hemsworth, you know, doing the, the Crocodile Dundee reboot. Like, they do... That, there was multiverses in there. Thor steps into a portal, comes out as Crocodile Dundee. Oh. Like, 
I don't know who owns the rights to Crocodile Dundee, but Disney are buying everything. Just buy the studio that bought, that owns Crocodile Dundee and then get Chris Hemsworth to transform from Thor into Crocodile Dundee. And then he can go back to doing Thor. Like it's an open, like Elseworlds universe, right? It's perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> we finally worked out how to fund this thing. Yes. We found the one people that Paul Hogan cannot say no to. The Disney, Disney Corporation. Corporation. <laughs> All right. Third film. Yeah. Is Mad does a, does a Mad Max film feature in this? Yes. Is it Mad Max Fury Road? It is Mad Max Fury Road. Which, which I rewatched sense. in preparation for the podcast and is Outstanding. It's I th- it gets better. It gets better. Yeah. I said to the guys on their show, but I think the thing that I've, I've said since the start that I love this about the movie, but I, the more you watch it, the more you realize is that so many movies want a universe build and they spend then all this time telling you the rules of the universe. Whereas what they did was they actually, from top to bottom, made a universe that makes sense. Mm. And then they just went, go, there's a story in the middle of it. And... All this makes sense yeah. and you have to just catch up with it as you go. And there are so many, not Easter eggs, because that implies they're hidden there so that you can spot them and go, just depths in understanding what the universe is from top to bottom. And so the more you watch it, the more you go, oh, I get this story now. I see that this is like, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but have you like done much reading about, I went on a deep dive on this last night because- I saw a theory on it and I'd never seen this theory, but the idea in Fury Road that it's this story about everybody missing a vital, you know, part of, so, you know, what, Furiosa doesn't have an arm and a modern Joe can't breathe. And like everybody has like something that they're fighting against, you know, that they've like they've lost. lost and that, that maybe Tom Hardy's playing Max's deaf. Ah. Because he mumbles all the way through. He misses key points where people are having conversations about things that he doesn't hear. And there are several sh- scenes where he gets shot like really close to his head. Like, and like, you ring, and like, and the idea might be that after these journeys, that he's like lost a lot of his hearing. And that's part of the reason that he's like not connecting with society. And it, it was, and anyway, whether it's true or not, it could be. You mm. watch it and you go, oh, like, but they never say, oh, by the way, could you speak up? I'm a bit hard of hearing. <laughs> you know, it's the, is Fu- was Furiosa one of, you know, a Mordon Joe's wives who's like made herself more valuable in the society by becoming this like, you know, road warrior. And that's why she responds. Yes, probably, I reckon. But who knows? Yeah. Like it doesn't matter. They just don't, they don't spend a minute world building because they built the entire world before they... There's a great video essay by the guy, I bring him up all the time, the show, Patrick Willems. And he, he does a whole video essay on when a director gets a huge amount of success and they get to make their passion project. And, you know, sometimes it's great and other times it's a disaster. But he's like, sometimes if you let a great filmmaker just have carte blanche and a $100 million budget, they can... He was talking about Aquaman saying, like, it's a terrible film, but there are so many interesting, crazy ideas in there. And he wished... You know, more directors got to do that. But the one film he said that just nails it is Fury Road. He said they get every part right. The criticism that I used to get so annoyed about with people who don't like Fury Road is like, it's no story. It's just like a car drives from one place to the other. It's like the story's in the fucking art direction. The story's in the characterization. There is so much story in that. It's just not spelling it out for you. It's those moments where... A, there's been a mythology created with internally in the universe. Like Immortan Joe has like created this religion, religion cult, yeah. and cult to destroy, like to control people. And it's so incredibly interesting his plan because his plan is that he's convinced these war boys that it's glorious to die in battle, mm. that they need to be witnessed. They not only have to die in the service of him, but they need to be witnessed by other people to get into Valhalla. They have to spray this silver on their face to look like, you know, the machines to enter in. But at the same time, it has the effect of you're in battle and you're huffing paint. Like, so he's got them to, you know, do something like giving mess to soldiers, right? Like that's part of this thing that he's doing. And then you have that story of Nicholas Holt's character, right? Who goes from being one of these war boys involved in this mythology to like falling in love in this story and then eventually like sacrificing himself and doesn't care about getting into Valhalla or being witnessed by a Morton Joe anymore. All he cares about is he's being seen by this person. He's for, and this all just happens 
as a side story yeah. in this big without, road movie. Without any but of the characters ever stating it explicitly. Any of those six. Yeah. And that's a story. Yeah. There's no story. There's a million stories. Because yeah. every time you start to think about something, you start to go, oh, what's that story? Yeah. How did this... Like, I mean, we've joked about it a million times before, but Iota's character... Yeah, this is a world where everybody has had to go, what is my value to this world? How do I find a place in this world? And even that story that you get enough of, of the, that character who's gone, well, I can't drive these cars and I can't, you know, like do whatever else I need to do in society, but I can fucking play guitar and I'm happy to be strung up on the front of one of your cars to do it. Like it is very much, that's a story. Like I don't need to see a spin-off series in eight episodes about how that character got there, but there's enough of that character on screen that you're just like, you're interested in that story. Um, all right, next film. Um, I'm going to take a bit of a punt and say Wolf Creek. Wolf Creek is on the list. Holy shit. All right, four for four. Partly because I wanted to tell that story of watching it at your place in, in Melbourne, in Sydney, in Melbourne? Melbourne. In Melbourne. Um with Greg yeah. when he was first like hey I've made this movie can you, you want to see it and I remember just in my head going oh yeah this will be great <laughs> I can't believe we don't have to watch it with him right here and it was great terrifying horrifying and that was like an unmixed version too that was like uh, he's basically doing a screen test or an audience test yeah and but I wanted to talk to to them in the context of it flipping that crocodile dundee yeah. narrative you know that we took yeah, this thing that had been lovable and gave it a bit more realism, which is that if you meet a character like that in the middle of nowhere, they're much more likely to kill you than they are to be Mick Dundee. So, so good. You're doing well. Four from four. Um, I'm going to go back a little bit oh. to the early 90s. Okay. A certain star-making turn by Russell Crowe. Oh, you're good at this. Rompus Dumper. Rompus Dumper. <laughs> well, well I think you and I have kind of quite similar tastes in films, so I'm just thinking, what am I going to nominate? And, and there aren't that many Aussie films, so you know, I felt like I got a good, good shot with this. Yeah, okay, good. Well done. Rompus Dumper. What did you say about Rompus Dumper? I well, love skinheads. That it was. <laughs> I said this was the one time <laughs> that there were neo-Nazis in Australia, and we cleared it up after that. Yeah. No, it was very much about the star making turn of Russell Crowe had a conversation around the idea of which is something I think about a lot which is can an actor be so good that you like a character that's not meant to be sympathetic like I understand that you can cast for that like Mm. so we have this unsympathetic character we're going to cast someone who's really sympathetic and we're going to play with that yeah but is there a point where the the performance is so good because like He's not the hero of that movie. It's not meant to be a movie where you go... He's not. He's the protagonist, but he's not yeah. the hero. But I think that you watch it and you kind of... He's so, so well, I think, isn't compelling. It, that, but isn't it a lesson in, like, if he was... If the character he was playing was Hitler, it's an exploration of how someone's charisma mm. can cause people to do awful things, how his belief in some twisted dogma, mm. you know, can affect the minds of others. So I think you can definitely... Uh, like a character who does horrible things. Like think of um, uh, Christian Bale playing Dick Cheney, like and complete plays him completely unlikably. There's no vanity in that performance at all, but it's like a compelling character because he just fucking is ruthless in going after what he wants. Yeah. So, okay, good. All You've right. done very well so far. Five is, from five. Does a Baz Luhrmann film make an appearance? No. Okay. Well, I'm glad I didn't use my I didn't use my bullet there. Yeah, I just was I was just testing the water. Um, yeah, I'm happy for you to ask a couple of questions. Uh, any like. any documentaries make the list? No, one that uh, is often confused with being a documentary. Mm. Okay. Um, all right. I'll Probably an unlikely one for the list. By the way, it's not a movie I think that we particularly have talked about. But I just I was talking about the idea of seeing something that you had no expectations about and that was made by some people who just had a an idea mm. and because it was made with friends and family and stuff who were who were professional actors it was very hard to tell if you didn't know whether it was a a documentary or not kenny kenny <laughs> <laughs> too much info <laughs> and it was about toilets <laughs> Turns out they had not seen Kenny. I've never seen Kenny. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's. I reckon it's worth watching. I think too much time has passed. Well, I think it, that's it, the problem. The trailers didn't grab yeah. me, and now it's become so like 
you know, it's like one of those films that you feel like, well, I feel like it's been talked about so much that, I, that I've seen it. Also, you know Shane Jacobson is not Kenny. Yeah. Like when that movie first came along, like it's done because they just went to a toilet company because they shot a lot of it backstage at you know, a horse race and the you know, an actual festival and these sort of things. It's almost like, you know, when you watch a Borat movie and half of it's going, oh, which bit's acting and which bit's like set up and which bit's like mm. an actual stunt. This is not a stunt movie, Kenny, but because it's set in the real world and he's the only one. And at the time people didn't know. And it's played just on that side of that. You could almost think it's a documentary. And I think that's one of the, but my favorite thing about that film is that they just had an idea for a film and made it a character. Right. I think if you have a fully fleshed out character and the conceit of documentary crew following them around, that works. I was talking to Jem actually the other day about found footage films. Like it feels like it's been so exhausted and like I still reckon there is a way to do a found footage film that overcomes that conceit of why they've, you know, with all this shit going on, why do they continue filming? The obvious choice that most filmmakers make is, oh, it's a documentary crew, it's a film crew. But I'm wondering if you could come up with a great concept of kind of like paranormal activity, which is like there's something going on in the house so we're going to leave cameras running all the time. I think I, I feel like by the time I crack the idea, found footage will be back again and we'll be over, people will be over it again. Like everyone's saying don't pitch found footage films now. I reckon now's the right time because by the time you make it, they'll be back. Right, yeah, you're sick of it now. Yeah. But this, do you this know how, how long, long this process is? Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to say there's a blue tongue film in there somewhere. Blue I don't think collect- there is actually. Oh, really? No. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't use my bullet. No. <laughs> that would be a reasonable guess, Yeah. but no. They've been the most critically acclaimed of the last Yeah, day. which wasn't really the direction that I went. Okay. I kind of was like, so you these movies are... Like, I, I thought that the movies might be interesting yeah. to the American audience, regardless of whether they'd seen the film or not. So okay. they had connection points in them that the rest of the world might be interested in. So Blue Tongue would you know, would be a good example. I could be like, this is the first Animal time Kingdom that you or... saw, you know, blah, 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 or yeah. this is, you know, where so-and-so came from. Like, right. But I didn't go yeah. with it. Animal Kingdom I thought about, but I went with another crime. In fact, another couple of crime movies. Okay. Um, all right, I've got a couple <laughs> in my head that are just, I'm <laughs> going to throw out there. This one is a complete Hail Mary. I don't know if you've seen this. Dogs in Space. Oh, I have seen it, but it did not make the list. No. God damn it. Well, off the back of that, the proposition. No. Ah, oh, shit. Richard Lowenstein gets no love from Will Anderson. I didn't actually love the proposition, to right. be honest. I just thought the Nick Cave connection yeah, and everything would be something. But no, to talk I liked about. all these movies. Right. Even if I didn't like all the actors. Or Another anything. crime film. Is it a crime comedy or a crime drama? One I think is a crime comedy, but I think it, it wasn't pitched as a crime comedy, but I rewatched it recently and this is where this rating has come from because it's actually a much funnier film than I gave it credit for the first time through. Uh, bad Eggs? Oh, yeah. It's not a bad film actually, but no, not Bad Eggs. Mm. No, not pitched as a comedy. Oh, like, right. I mean, like made as... It's got a lot of Australian humour in it, but it's like I'm. It's a crime drama, um, or a crime. Uh, what what era are we talking? Nineties, oh. early two thousands. Death in Brunswick. Oh no, that's a good movie too. Though. That, that would actually have been a good one for the list. Death in Brunswick. No, think of um, launched some stars into the world. Okay. It was a breakthrough performance by somebody who became a big star and it also co-starred somebody who's become a very big American star as well. Okay, so it's not... And an iconic Australian actor. We'll come back to that. I'm going to just jump to another film that I just thought of because it's one of my favourite Australian films. Dead Calm. Oh, Dead Calm's a good film. Didn't make it. Did not make it. Shit. All right. Uh, All right, now I'm I'm really starting to struggle. Because I'm... Think... Um, Launched big Australians, a female think, or male star. Think well. Think who would I have a story about? Because uh, you know, I'm also doing a podcast where I'm like, it's meant to be. Here's your personal anecdote about this film. So, who 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 might I have a personal anecdote about? I mean, I would say Russell Crowe, but I feel yeah. like we've covered that with Rumpel Stumper. So who would you have? And he's a big star now. Yeah. Well. Well, was was a big star. Uh, is it, mm. In the early 90s? How many? No, late, late 90s, early 2000s. Oh, okay. So it's Sam Worthington. Is it Sam Worthington? You're kind of in the right zone. Okay. Better actor than Sam Worthington. Better actor than Sam Worthington. Oh, Mendo. 
No. No shit. Oh. <laughs> Who, what other stars did we produce in that time period? It's not Mendo. It's not. Um, I reckon this is someone who's in between Mendo and Worthington. I'd imagine on when they came same into the kind of like came into the scene. Aussie bloke type. Uh, well, no, I was thinking boy? more. Well, yeah, I went up. Yes, that's what I was going with when I was like Sam Worthington. Oh, was, Eric Banner and Chopper. Oh, well, Eric no. Banner and Chopper is one of the movies on my list. Okay, that well, was not what I was thinking. <laughs> about, but Eric Banner and Chopper was one of them. Yes. Shit, I don't know. Just tell me. This is doing my head in. Um, think like even like if you don't know something, mm. like what's the like expression you might send as an emoji. Like, do you know what Question emoji? Mark? If like now, if it's like shrugging, oh, the face. you know, like yeah, shrug, uh, yeah, okay. Like, what, what do you look down? Hot rod. Well, yeah, no, while you're shrugging, <laughs> I'm my you're <laughs> Look down while I'm shrugging. Like that. <laughs> it probably wasn't the best clue <laughs> that what I'm I've ever gone with. Um, how about there is? Uh, it stars. I'll give you some. Give me a uh, co-star. I'll give you yeah some co-stars. Yeah. Susie Porter. No. David Field. Oh, two hands. Two hands. Fuck yes. But Heath Ledger, how could I forget? <laughs> right. Heath Ledger, Rose Byrne. Yeah, great. Brian film. Brown. Excellent film. The I rewatched that. It just was on TV the other night. Everything you just said makes sense now. It's funny. It is and, yeah. so funny. The scene where he they rob the bank, they play in the bank robbery. Yeah, he shot he's a good mate. <laughs> they just and then rob the bank is it's fucking hilarious. Yeah. It is really, really funny film. I'd forgotten how... And like intentionally funny, not like it's... Yeah, yeah. I know when James and Meso have American listeners say, hey, what Australian films should we watch? Two Hands is normally their go-to. Yeah. Which I think... Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen it in years, but I imagine it would hold up. It was just a good, solid film. It sort of was in that era of the Guy Ritchie, Tarantino, crime, quirky crime film. I think it holds up better than I remember it. Yeah. Yeah. And Heath Ledger's... Great. You can tell immediately that he was going to be a star. All right. So we, we, we ticked off Chopper. Yeah. Uh, had they seen Chopper? Uh, they had seen Chopper. Yes. Okay. So, all right. Yes. Um, had they seen... Had they never seen Eric Banner do comedy acting though? Yeah, and right. I was like, Did you tell them? The, the castle. I said, you've got to watch this. And I'm trying to explain the castle to them and they're like real blank on it. And then at the end, Josh is like, you know a movie from Australia that I did like? The Dish. And I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. Okay. <laughs> it's the guys who made the dish. <laughs> but I said, yeah, you've got to watch Eric Banner in this. I mean, I think the castle would be, I, I can't imagine any overseas person watching that and enjoying it because it, to me, it just feels so niche. A, it's an ugly looking film. And I say that with all respect because that's the, it's trying to capture like a feeling of suburban Australia, but it's not like a pretty film or particularly well shot or anything. It's cost $750,000 to make. I did some research on it. Um, from coming up with the idea to being in the final cut edit, what was that period of time? Um, six months. That would be pretty quick. Lower. Three months. Lower. Uh, two months. Lower. Four weeks. Five weeks. Oh, wow. From coming up with the idea, they wrote the script in two weeks. Wow. They shot it in 11 days. And and it made money too. 10 million bucks in Australia. Off a $750,000 budget. Yeah. And wow. a thing that they came up with and they made in five weeks. It's an incredible story. That, particularly the fact that it holds up. Yeah. Like you can watch that today and still go, this is a well-made film. So it did is. you re-watch every film before? No. No. No, okay. no, no. But I... No, and I didn't rewatch uh, Two Hands for it. I just had, oh, you just remember it. had watched that recently. It was on TV, and I just watched it. Okay, um, give me some genres that I haven't um, gone into. Okay, so what have I? Is there any genres like comedies or? Uh, I, I, I'm not or... keeping count, but I think we, we might have two left. Okay, I think you might have guessed. Okay, so um, all right, so both about iconic moments or things in Australian history and both from the 80s, early 80s. Oh, okay. And they're, they're feature films, not telly movies, not like the... Not telly movies. Not the Byron Kennedy no, but, dismissal. Uh, no, but feature... Key Australian. Yeah, key Australian moments. Gallipoli. Gallipoli, which is an excellent, excellent, excellent film. film. Still heartbreaking. Don't go. When you hear the whistle, don't go. Just stay where you are. That's my tip. When you hear that bloody whistle, just stay in the trench. It is... Heartbreaking. 
I mean, as I said to them, no spoilers because it's a real event. Like, it's fine. It did not go well for us. Yeah. But that is such a beautifully made film. Yeah. And I'm getting goosebumps actually thinking about that last five minutes. It's a. It, I remember seeing that as a kid and then utterly devastated. Devastated. Because Peter Weir takes the time at the start of the movie to make those characters fun. Mm. In fact, I was thinking about it in preparation for this. And I think one of the great things about that film is that you really get a sense of, oh yeah, our best like got sent off for no reason and like massacred as like cannon fodder for the British on this fucking beach, you know, this day. And they were like, you know, champion sprinters and yeah, members of the community, a generation that just got fucking erased for no good fucking reason. It's actually a very, I always think of Gallipoli as being like a pro-war movie, but I think like as an adult, well, no, just because it's about war, right, you yeah. kind of think that it's like, but it's clearly not. Yeah. It's clearly a it's massive, a, it's a very like well-made massive anti-war movie. It's as, as big a war movie as Platoon is yeah. a war movie. Like it is so confronting. And that idea of, in, uh, I've been reading a lot about, you know, really well-written tight scripts, the plant and the payoff, the plant and the payoff. So something that you put at the start of the film pays off at the end. And there's got to be none more heartbreaking than the rev up his coach gives him. What are your legs? Still springs. What are they going to do? Hurl me down the track. Like that payoff is that, oh, you're going to use that motivation to run into machine gun fire. It's just so, so sad. And what a final shot of a film to freeze frame on that and go to black so there's no kind of moment where you see the band swell and he gets lowered into the grave with australian flag there's none of that shit it's just like what yeah it's over life gets snuffed out goodbye that's it it's a very powerful film does you know uh, uh, off topic a little bit there's a really great film in the same vein which didn't get all the attention but hurt locker is what Catherine Bigelow won her Oscar for. But Zero Dark Thirty, if you want to talk about an anti... Well, it's not really an anti-war film. It's an anti-violence, anti-revenge film because the way they structure it is so ingenious. It starts off with a terrorist attack and then the hunt for Osama bin Laden. And you know how like films traditionally will build and build until the third act is, a, is like a big kind of final climax. This film starts with a climax. And then as the protagonist searches for revenge and finding Osama bin Laden, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until the final battle is just these guys with night vision goggles running through like a dark house while she watches on a monitor and an old man is shot dead. And the final shot is her sitting on an aircraft carrier alone, having achieved her mission. And the door just shuts on her and it's like, that's what it's all for. All this kind of bloodshed, all this violence, all this, all the money that's been spent on this conflict, and it's all for that. Nothing. You're still alone. Ugh, war sucks, Will. <laughs> <laughs> One final film, I think. Okay, what genre? Uh, Farlap. Correct. Man's- oh, it was a far. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, that was a shot. Of, you know what? It's just gazing out your office you to just the rolling felt hills. It. And yeah, you yeah. just felt something. Yeah, are you like, you like, Will probably ran out at number nine, hadn't thought of dead calm. He's looked out the window, seen some horses, <laughs> and gone, fuck it. <laughs> it's either that or the man from Snowy River. Did that get a, did you think? They of? were my toss up movies, yeah. to be honest. The horse I, film. I wanted to, like, because they just feel in, like, I, they're just the first movies I remember watching. Yeah. I would have probably been that age, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, like, you know, that sort of thing where your parents aren't going to let you watch a whole bunch of movies and they were pretty, you know, because you're learning something, you know, it's about this, you know. I, so I think that, yeah, I mean, I hate horse racing now, but like Farlap is a movie that it's all that underdog stuff. I and quite remember. No, Tom Bellinson's in both, isn't he? He's in Farlap and he's Johnny... The man from Snow Tommy Robert. John Cock or Johnny Tom Cock. What's the character's <laughs> name? Tommy Woodcock. Tommy Woodcock. Tommy Woodcock. Yeah, I know, I know it Tommy sounds John. like the comedy. You actually went with a less comedic. <laughs> Tommy Johncock. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so he's in both of them. I, I, I have vague memories as a kid. I feel like in the 80s in Australia, there were a lot of horse movies. Mm-hmm. I, my vague memory of watching TV as a kid is there's always something about someone and a horse like yeah. a relationship with a horse do we do we disproportionately make horsey movies well there was the light horseman yeah there was the man from, man from zoe river, river. there was far lap there was far lap wasn't there another one about like a girl 
who's in the woods and finds a horse. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that's a different Well, the, recently, that Teresa yeah. Palmer film, Ride Like a Girl. Oh, Ride Like a Girl. Like, killed it at the box office. Yeah. Red Horse. <laughs> <laughs> that movie, Red Horse. But it does make me think, like, Australians with that cultural cringe is we're not comfortable promoting, apart from yeah. Crocodile Dundee, we're yeah. not comfortable promoting images of Australians yeah. that are animals. Yeah. You should check yeah. out this guy. I mean, he's a Kiwi, but yeah. check out the size of his heart. Huge. The original Russell Crowe. <laughs> no wonder I had an affinity for it. I've been raised on this mythology. What do you remember about Far Up the movie? Was it Peter Weir? It was a big, it was a big director, wasn't it? Who made the Simon Winston. Yeah. Right. Who um, uh, you know, I think also made Man from Snowy River. Yeah, I think so. He's the horse. He no. was your horse guy. No, sorry. He was your horse whisperer? George Miller, not Dr. George Miller. Mm. There's another George Miller made The Man from Snowy River and Simon Winsor made Farlap, I believe. Okay. That's how it goes. Can you imagine being... Like the other George the Miller. The other George Miller, who did pretty well. Man from Snowy River was a pretty big film. But then another George Miller, who's also a doctor. doctor. Like, you know, very appropriate for this podcast. <laughs> because we know how much we respect doctors. But you just be bummed out. Not only does he have my name, but he's actually much more successful. I mean... And it, doesn't even have to be doing this. It is a real reflection of this podcast that we're listened to by a bunch of doctors. But the only time we talk about, you know, anything done by a doctor is Mad Max. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you did very well. I was actually very impressed Well, that's a good that. promo for the show. So when does that come out? I uh, don't know. Okay. In the next few weeks, I imagine. Keep listening for it. Yeah. Um, I mentioned uh, hanging out with VK and his kids uh, on the weekend. And I had this moment with them where it's never happened to me before. But I felt like respected and like looked up to because Vaughn had went off to get the boys pizza and mm. he came back. Um, with his eldest and he was saying, ask Charlie, he'll know the answer. And so his eldest was like, um, why does Batman dress like a bat? And I was like, oh, because, oh no, how did Batman become Batman? I said, well, he saw his parents killed. Why was he dressed like a bat? Well, he was frightened of bats as a kid and he wanted to strike fear into the hearts of criminals because they're a cowardly lot, blah, blah, blah. And then his little brother piped up and was like, why does Iron Man wear his suit? And I started answering that and he's like, how did the Hulk become the Hulk? And they started asking me all this and I knew all the answers and these kids will, the way they were looking at me with just like, wow, this guy knows everything. Finally, after 43 years, all this useless knowledge I have has made me like a rock star in the eyes of these two little kids. I felt well useful. Enjoy this small window of relevance because I have had the opposite experience recently where I was out with a bunch of uh, slightly older than VK's kids. So only probably another two or three years on from them. And their parents have done a very similar thing of just going, oh, Will likes, you know, comic books. Talk to him about comic books. And <laughs> I was with them for the first five minutes, but then they went into deep side characters <laughs> and knew everybody's powers back to front. Oh, right. And like, I, like I thought I was kind of across Captain Marvel. Turns out I am not across Captain Marvel in like the... The distinctions that they knew oh, no. between people's relative abilities and what they would be like in interactions and fights and stuff, I was like, "Oh my god!" So why did they? Why did they, so the parents didn't send? Well, see, no, because the kids to you to get the parents. Info. They just no, said, "Will knows comics. You can yeah, talk comics." So the parents clearly don't oh talk god. comics with their kids because they're not interested in comics, right? Yeah. So I've had that point of connection, and if they'd been Vorno's kids. I could have impressed them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I know those kids. You know the basics. I know. You how, know the vitals. Yeah, I know how the Hulk became the Hulk and why Iron Man wears his suit and stuff like that. But this is like B and C characters that I am not really across their relative. And suddenly I was like, I feel like a fraud. Right. I was getting a real comic book uh, So what were they, how, how are they, how was the conversation going? Were they just dropping these character names and you're just silently panicking? At or? the start, I was fine because we were talking like key cast Avengers and right. stuff. And then starting, starting, starting five, whatever it is. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. Like I can do pretty much anyone who appeared in Endgame. Okay. Anyone who appeared in Endgame, I'm pretty much across, right? But that's from the, what the movies have told you. You don't know comic book law oh no but i'd know enough i'd be, be be able to give you a pretty good example of a like a lot of those guys i don't but think, they were not even naming people that like were in the I, avengers i don't think i could even tell you what captain marvel's deal is i didn't quite understand it from watching that film so she was an air force pilot mm. that's all i know <laughs> <laughs> wait no what happened she got hit with the alien laser 
I honestly don't know. I thought what she was you... always like. It wasn't she always from? So she was born. She was born like in in space, and then like lost her memory on Earth. And M- Mendo's in it. She gets shot by an Aussie alien. A yeah. Skrull. I don't know. Maybe. What's her origin? So she. Was... But anyway, she's super powerful, and these kids knew all the things she could do. None of which I was across. Right. Did they like Captain Marvel? Is that like one of their favorites? They're actually very fond of Captain Marvel. Yeah. See, that's a thing. Like, I know that film was got mixed with a very mixed reception and stuff, but I think it's kind of like people who complain about listening to Triple J and being like, oh, you know, I don't even know what this shit is. You don't. But there's a whole group of young people who know what that is. And the fact that you don't get it doesn't make the character invalid. It means you're irrelevant. I remember the exact point that the conversation went beyond me. Because I was, I was holding my own up until we were talking about whether Superman and Captain Marvel, who'd win in a fight, right? Ah, yeah. and The classic who would win in a fight. And what I was bringing to the table was the idea that Captain Marvel, because they have relatively similar powers, like as far as I'm concerned, right? Relatively similar powers. Captain Marvel's got military training, whereas Superman has just had to pick shit up as he goes, right? More well, journalist training. He's a, he's a gun, he's, he walks the beat or whatever journalists do. Yeah, and uh, and there's been training in like you know his crystal castle or whatever. I <laughs> get his aura photograph. <laughs> he's got his drum circle training what's it, what's or whatever. It there's fortress of solitude. The fortress of solitude. The, the, yeah, those kids the crystal been all castle. over me as well. <laughs> the fortress of Bot Bolanude. <laughs> but I was saying that her military training would be the thing that gave her an edge because Superman's just had to pick stuff up. But I suppose he's done like Kryptonian training and stuff, hasn't he? No. He's raised on Earth as a farm boy. Yeah, but isn't there isn't one of the fortress, oh, fortress of solitude like thing that he's like sent throwing some, a DVD? Yeah, it's like this. he's got like a Chris Hemsworth style training program. <laughs> like, yeah, you know? Center fit. Yeah, <laughs> Krypton fit. Yeah, <laughs> it's just Superman doing a bunch of sixty second Instagram videos of him like lifting mountains. <laughs> I mean, that would be could. If, if Superman wanted to kind of like, just say Superman ran yeah. up a huge tax bill, mm. Fortress of Solitude, like, you know, he didn't he didn't declare a bunch of stuff right. in there and now the tax office has come for him. So he has to start making some money. So, so hang on, has Clark Kent no, like gone super- into tax trouble or has Superman, Superman. gone into tax No, no, trouble. Clark Kent, like he keeps, you know, P's and Q's, he's very meticulous. He right. keeps it. But Superman, because that's mm. like a completely... You know, uh, there's no council approval right. on the North Pole for that bu- that building, and so he gets whacked with this huge yeah. fine. Plus, there's all the trophies he's yeah. kept that he hasn't declared. Right? Are they gifts or you know are they assets? You got to write these off. So he gets a huge tax bill. So he gets he joins one of the big like management teams in the US. And they're like, we can help dig you out of the hole, but you're gonna have to do some. You're gonna have to sell yourself a bit. Mm-hmm. So they come up with like, you know, what you should do Superman is like. Like a, a fitness regime, like you can start right. your own center fit. Yeah. Super fit. Super fit. Do you think people want to take fitness advice from a guy who has an unnatural advantage? Yep. Do you reckon that would do well? I think people are pretty much only taking fitness advice from people who have unnatural advantages. <laughs> you think so? Chris Hemsworth. And There's as much Superman. a gap between me and Chris Hemsworth as there is between Chris Hemsworth and Superman. So flipping that, if some, do you think that a fitness app by someone who doesn't look like Chris Hemsworth, Mm -hmm. isn't every man, would do well? Or do you think people don't want to aspire to be like that? They want to aspire to be like Chris Hemsworth. I think that... You need the pretty It's aspirational, right? You want to see the finished product. But Chris isn't the finished product. He's always looked like that. This is where DDP yoga can help you. Well, <laughs> it's my selling point. Well, that's why they do their before and afters. And DDP yoga are actually very big on the before and afters. And I am, I, I am very easily convinced by a before and after. I see a lot of people who've lost a lot of weight and uh, feeling much better using their DDP yoga. It has not made me use it yet. But have you downloaded the app yet? Are we talking? I think about I have this? downloaded the app. Yeah, it's such a terrible looking app. Like it looks like it was made by Monster Energy Drink or something. It's just. It's like Affliction T-shirts have got into the app-making business. Like, look, this was four years ago. They downloaded DDP Yoga. Maybe they've made some changes, but it was just that Gold Coast aesthetic that I was like, I can't get behind oh, this. I'm, I'm really surprised that professional wrestler Diamond Dallas Page <laughs> didn't have a more subtle touch. <laughs> well, it's been a long time since we've dipped into the mailbag. Um, so I thought I would read some letters. 
Uh, should we also tell people a bit about, you know, what we're thinking of doing uh, going forward in terms of, we realise the Patreon's been a bit dormant over mm-hmm. the break. Um, and what we were doing was like bonus episodes where you and I would answer questions, but it's not always easy for you and I to get together to do that once we've already done an episode, especially when the other shows start up. So we thought we still want to give away those fridge magnets because they're burning a hole in my, my drawer. Um, but maybe you and I would take it in turns to answer those questions. Maybe just do a five to 10 minute video and put that on Patreon. So if we can do it together, great. But if not, will or, will or I may be popping up on the Patreon to answer your questions. Do you think yep. that makes sense? Good idea. All right, cool. Um, here's some mail for some people who've written into us. And to do that, they go to tofop.com and you can go to the bottom of the page. There's a contact form for not just Tofop, but any of our other podcasts. This is from Merrill. I believe you now need someone for this Macho A team who has OHS superpowers. Oh, yeah, good. We didn't think about occupational health and safety. Well, this is going to your Superman tax issue. That's often the things that (laughs) you overlook (laughs) through the cracks. A large percentage of the team so far are just numbnuts who are accident prone and make terrible decisions. That's a good point. You need to balance it out. A little thinking woman's crumpet to the mix. Here comes HR to spoil the fun. <laughs> As this all started with you two curious about your target market for the podcast, I am a 50-year-old woman. I found you through Willosophy and found Willosophy through Lee Sales and Annabelle Crabbe's Chats 10 Looks 3. Is that right? Is that what it's called? Chat 10 Looks 3. Chat 10 Looks 3. Love your work. Makes me smile every single week, Meryl. Thank you, Meryl. And you know who that Meryl is? Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep. <laughs> the one and only Meryl Streep. Uh, this is from Nick. Uh, subject, finding Elias, the man kicked by the tallest horse in Norway. Oh, yep. To Colin Fop, is it possible to get some cross-pollination uh, and get Alexi and Cameron to investigate Elias' story? Oh, yeah. Do we just give that away? I mean, that show's doing fine without us giving them extra credit. Well, I mean... I'd be happy Can for we them do it? to... Can we steal it? Can we do Finding Elias? Well, I mean, we know where he is. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> finding Elias's horse. Finding the biggest horse in all of Norway. Yeah, we'd like. The, I think the horse, we lead with the horse. We're Australians. <laughs> it's a safe area. We can get some funding if we focus it more on the horse than Elias. Uh, this is from Sebastian. Dear Will and Charlie, hope you're both doing well. And could do me a favor of reading this out on the pod so Elias, the Norwegian guy with the big horse, can hear it. All right, Elias, listen up. My mum's Icelandic, so I go over to Iceland every year or so to see family and relax. Outside of Iceland, I don't know anyone from a Scandinavian country and I need an outsider's view on something. So, Elias, is there a rumor or a joke about Icelanders partaking in bestiality with sheep? I feel like there should be. <laughs> By the way, his mum's Icelandic. Uh, sheep are one of the f- uh, are one of like five species of animals in this country, and in my opinion, the most fuckable. <laughs> Maybe there aren't any rumours, but I feel like there definitely should be, since most Icelandic people I've met are a little weird and more than a little racist, especially the Chinese people. Also, which that- is also feels a little racist. <laughs> yeah, it does. Also, if there are any more Icelandic listeners, I'd love to hear what they have to say in defense of these sheep fucking claims that maybe I made up, but who knows? <laughs> Isn't that just a thing though? Like, it's always the smaller country. Like Australia says it about New Zealand. England says it about Scotland. It's just a, it's a tale as old as time itself, Will. Here's what I would tell you 100% that I know as a professional stand-up comedian. Mm-hmm. According to jokes, everyone's fucking sheep. Okay. Everyone. You just find... The place that does not like you, they're accusing you of fucking sheep. Okay. Um, also, if a Norwegian, if Norwegian horses are anything, I don't like- know why sheep particularly too. That like, because I think that that. Well, as you said, they're one of the five most fuckable. But I'm going to say that. So why is it even an insult? Because I like if you are going to have sex with an animal, a sheep is probably a good place to start, right? You got that padding, that fur. Yeah. Have a little cuddle afterwards. I suppose you. Well, I think it's maybe. Like, if you're going to do something like that anyway, like, at least go for, like, a tiger or something like that. Something no. that could potentially kill you. No. Why? That's more of a, Why like, do you need to add a thrill to this? Because it's like there's something about, like, otherwise it's just, like, there's a little sheep. Otherwise right? it's just bestiality. <laughs> it's just bestiality. Like, <laughs> just, this, now, this is a reality boring. show. 
The Tiger King would have been a lot different. Oh, I don't know if it would have been that different. <laughs> I feel like it would have been very similar. Uh, also, if Norwegian horses are anything like Icelandic horses, they are very small. Yeah. And Elias, if you hear this, just know you're not the only one who's been shot by an angry dad. Oh, okay. Luckily... I could drive to a hospital. Anyways, let <laughs> me just brush this over there. <laughs> Anyways. Anyways, I hope everyone is having an all right day and not partaking in bestiality, not to kink shame. Best wishes, Sebastian. Um, yeah, I hope, I hope no one's partaking in that, especially not... I don't want to know that's happening and I especially don't want to know that someone is listening to our podcast while that's happening. I don't think that it would be. You don't think? I'm pretty confident to rule it out. Okay. Uh, this is from M. Uh, another request for to be added to macho fop which is closed by the way uh, the artwork is being created as we speak thank you to our uh tofop 11 uh, tofop 12 who are actually 11 people uh foz is hard at work on your prize um i don't know what it's gonna look like yet he was furious at me for suggesting mount rushmore i thought it'd be easy to do like a mount rushmore kind of thing but apparently not <laughs> turns out that we think lots of things are easy that are beyond our comprehension. Well, here's the guy who said, I'll do a comic shit for you guys. It'll be three panels. And yeah. it turned out to be 15 panels each time. Not mm. our fault. I know, but I never got the impression that that made it easier. Yeah, good point. Uh, okay. This is from M. I realize this is late. I've been catching up on a few apps while I have time and a break. I'm just wondering if there is room in your squad for a special guest appearance Perhaps even from a small and terrifying girl. Yeah, mate, we don't discriminate. If you're macho, you're in. A few years ago, as a four-year-old, my daughter developed explosive onset epilepsy. She had rolling, fairly catastrophic seizures for about four days. She reacquired the ability to recognize letters and to speak over a few days. During this process, she was less inhibited than usual. The most macho part of this was when she was sitting chatting with me in a hospital bed. She calmly turned to me and in a conversational tone told me she was really sorry, but she was going to have to destroy me and destroy my husband and then destroy everyone. Imagine a very pretty little kid with waist-length hair sweetly discussing the destruction of the world. God. I mean, I'm no doctor, but I would look for a 666 birthmark on her skull. Oh, my God. Later that day, she was playing with her dad and I asked a nurse if we should be worried. My daughter froze. Uh, turned her eyes to me in a really menacing tone, said, I told you not to tell anyone. <laughs> Your first mum. <laughs> and then kept playing like she had not interrupted at all. Genuinely terrifying. Yeah. I could see her being brought in late in the play on some kind of big heist to frighten the bejesus out of the team's foe, though not sure about the age limits and ragtag teams. Hope this finds you all well, relaxed and happy. Um, I reckon definitely why we'll have her on the bench. <clears throat> Because it is one of those things where, like, if you if your team, if the TOEFOP 12 turn up, you know, to some conflict to sort shit out, you know, and they're going to see, like, we've got a we've got a Japanese samurai and we've got, like, Kat, you know, the world traveler, like, Lara Croft-style adventurer. But you'd see the little girl and you'd immediately go, shit. Yeah. What's up? Yeah. The, what's up with a little girl? The little girl who does nothing. Yeah, that's the one you're worried about. If you're ever in a bar and a fight breaks out, watch out for the little guy standing in the corner, <laughs> not doing anything, who's just calmly watching the action because he's going to fuck shit up. <laughs> and that could be your daughter, Em. Uh, finally, Will, this is from David, who uh, subject is guest available for interview, David Weiss, flat earth expert. Okay. I hope this finds you well. I recently feels came... like a confusing sentence to be honest, because I'm not sure that you could be all those things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I hope this message finds you well. Recently came across your show Tofop, and would like to ask if you'd be open and available to having Mr. David Weiss on as a guest to interview the t the topic of flat Earth. Yeah. David has been featured twice in brackets two X. On Sam Tripoli's Tinfoil Hat, Alex Jones's Infowars, and Owen Benjamin, along with numerous other shows. Right. Here's a short four-minute trailer of David's recent appearances, and here is his video pitch. Looking forward to your reply. I don't think you are. <laughs> I don't think you should be. Uh, no. No. You know what? Uh, we've almost come to the end of this episode. Right. Why don't we do another 10 minutes, and we'll throw this up on the Patreon. If you want to know more about oh. what we think about David Weiss and his flat earth theory, and whether or not we even decide... <laughs> To invite him, first guest ever in 10 years we've had on the show. 
you can go to Patreon, and that is at patreon.com forward slash TOEFOP. It's worth signing up for lots of reasons. Bonus episodes of one reason. There's also great artwork. Quantum Cop, James is hard at work on that. There's also behind-the-scenes videos, behind-the-scenes photos, a lot of artwork that's been done over the years, comic strips. There's a lot, Will. Go to patreon.com now. Yeah, patreon.com slash tofop and of course tofop.com for all our podcasts. You've been doing a really cool series of uh, interviews with you know various celebrity supporters of AFL teams on Two Guys One Cup That's right. about how they came Going to back for their team. And it's excellent. It's a I I hadn't had an opportunity to listen to it, and then the other day I went through about three or four episodes in a row. It's really great fun, Thanks, so man. people should listen to that. Yep. And I am going to start doing Fofop again next week, I think. Awesome. Uh, if you want to listen to Do Guys One Cup, the episode up at the moment is Matt Stewart, you might know from Primates and Do Go On. Uh, and then in an Australian comedian sandwich, Josh Earl will be on this Friday talking about the kangaroos. Thank you for that tip-off. There's been certain teams where it's hard to unearth, kind of like someone who can talk about the team, but uh, Josh was a great tip-off. So He has a great podcast too that I highly recommend people checking out that we have both appeared on, so make sure you check out Josh's podcast as well. And who's on Philosophy this week? Uh, at, uh, so the episode that just went up this week, uh, Chris Walker, who might not necessarily be a name that people recognise immediately, but he is... As he says in the podcast, the guy who ruins paparazzi shots of Carrie Bickmore. He is <laughs> Carrie Bickmore's partner, but he's also the executive producer of The Weekly, Charlie Pickering's show. He's the executive producer of Hard Quiz, Tom Gleason's show. He was an executive producer at The Project, and he has a new podcast series about the dumpster fire of 2020 called Brains Trust, which is really excellent. So we have a, a good old-fashioned long natter. It's a good episode. Go to tofop.com to check that all out. Uh, I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Will Anderson. Anderson.